The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. So today is Easter. Today we commemorate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's the greatest event that has ever taken place in all of history. And as Franklin said this morning, it's the greatest day in the life of the church. It's while we're here. It's also a time that we look back in commemoration not of not just Jesus' resurrection, but also his death and his suffering. How he willingly submitted to those who hated him. He allowed them to treat him brutally and to crucify him on a cross. And we think about how that for his followers that that moment seemed like the end but rather it was the beginning because what seemed like defeat was really the opportunity for victory (coughs) as it fulfilled God's plan for salvation for mankind. And I don't know if you all have ever pondered why Jesus had to come and suffer and die and rise again. We're told in the book of Hebrews that Without blood, there is no remission of sins. So we understand that, and we we look at the history of the Israelites in the Old Testament and how that God gave them all of these sacrifices, mostly blood sacrifices. Yes, there were some that were uh, grain sacrifices, etc. But it's clear that God, because of man's sin requires a blood sacrifice. And I can't stand here and explain that. And I point that out to say that Christ's death, his suffering and his death and his resurrection is something that we can't humanly explain all of the reasons for we can't we can't see into the mind of god and so we might look at this account with some questions in our mind but yet what is important isn't that we understand all of the whys but that we have faith. And in faith, we believe and that we accept. This morning, I've chosen to look at a different passage rather than the account of the resurrection or Christ's suffering. But it's a passage that I feel helps us to wrap our minds around and to understand 
what Christ has done for us and why, what it means for us. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3. And at the beginning of this passage, we see Nicodemus coming to Jesus. And we see that Nicodemus didn't understand everything either. Nicodemus came to Jesus, I believe, looking for answers, looking for understanding of what Jesus' mission was. I'd like to read John 3, verse 1 through 21. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And just as a side note, I'd like to point out there that notice what Nicodemus said. He was a, a Pharisee. He was part of the ruling council. And he says that we know that thou art a teacher come from God. That speaks of the rejection that the leaders of the Jews chose as they chose to reject Jesus and crucify him rather than to accept his message because Nicodemus said that we, plural, know that thou art a teacher come from God. Going on, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, I say, verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but, thou, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Thou art a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that, would, that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you, earth, if I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man ascended, up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth, excuse me, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation 
that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that hate, doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh unto the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that he, his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. So as I said, we have Nicodemus here coming to Jesus, asking who basically I see him asking, who are you and what are you doing? He was looking for explanations. And I already pointed out that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And in the New Testament, we see the Pharisees portrayed as being very skeptical and antagonistic of Jesus. And I believe that was because Jesus was teaching something that was counter to the lives that the Pharisees were living. And they felt very threatened by what Jesus was teaching. They were a very conservative and strict group, upholding the law of Moses and the tradition of the elders. But yet, as we look at them as a group, they were very uh, self-centered and self-seeking. And Jesus came teaching self-sacrifice, denial of self, death to self. And so while, as a whole, they were antagonistic and unreceptive of Jesus, we see Nicodemus here as being open, seeking to understand. And undoubtedly, Nicodemus had either seen and probably both seen and heard of the miracles that Jesus had performed. And so he came questioning what is this all about. And so in a few short verses here, Jesus in his discourse with Nicodemus told Nicodemus and us what his mission was about why he was here, why he had come, and what he was doing. And we see that Jesus immediately, in answer to Nicodemus, introduces two things. He introduces the kingdom of God and the new birth. And he says that the kingdom of God is something that the natural man cannot see. And the subject of the kingdom is something that is a whole message in in and of itself. But we need to remember that the kingdom of God is in opposition to the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of Satan. And so Jesus right away brings up the kingdom of God and he says that The natural man cannot see it. There's a separation, there's a blindness to God's kingdom. 
that's brought about by sin. The sin of, of mankind separates us from God's kingdom. But he goes on to say that their only way to see and to understand the kingdom is through the new birth. Jesus points out that through just justice through natural physical birth ushers us into this world, there's also a birth that ushers us into the reality of the kingdom of God. And think about it. Before a baby is born, it knows nothing of this world. It's a place that child has never seen. It's never experienced. And so it knows nothing of the world it's about to enter. And the same is true spiritually of the new birth. It ushers us into a new world, a new way of thinking, a new reality, a reality of the things of God. And so Nicodemus struggles here to understand what Jesus is saying, and he says, well, how can this be? And in verse 5, Jesus goes on to explain that it's not a new physical birth, but a spiritual birth. And he says it's a, a birth of water and the Spirit, which would seem to symbolize or be references to baptism by water and baptism by the Holy Spirit, which water baptism symbolizes repentance, washing away of our sins, cleansing from unrighteousness. It symbolizes getting rid of the sin that we all carry because of being part of the human race. And baptism of the Spirit is the infilling, the in-breathing of spiritual life into our spiritually dead bodies through the, through the Spirit of God. And I thought that's a good, in a nutshell, description of the new birth, the repentance, the washing away, the getting rid of the sin that we have within us and being filled, taking that, that first new breath like an infant of the Holy Spirit, being infilled with the Spirit. Without that, that new birth, that washing away of sin and being filled with the Spirit, we're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Just as without new birth, a natural birth, we're not going to enter into this physical world. Jesus goes on in verse 7 to say, Marvel not that I say unto you that you must be born again. In other words, it should be no surprise. It should be expected that there would be an entrance into the kingdom of God, that there would need to be a change, that something would have to change in our lives for us to enter into God's kingdom.
just as we've entered into this world through the natural birth. But there's one big difference between the natural birth, being born into this world, into the kingdom of this world, versus being born into the kingdom of heaven. The difference is choice. None of us entered this world by choice. We came when nature said it was time. But entering into the kingdom of heaven takes a choice. A personal choice for each one of us. It's not an automatic thing. And that decision then will make a difference within our lives. In verse 8, Jesus likens that change of the new birth and the indwelling of the Spirit, Holy Spirit to that of the wind. He says the wind blows. We can't see it. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes. But yet we see the effects of it. Christina Rossetti pointed this out in her poem, Who Has Seen the Wind? She says, Who has seen the wind? Neither I nor you. But when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing through. Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I. But when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. You know, there's things that prove to us that the wind exists. We experience it. We observe it. And it's the same with someone who is truly born again, who truly has the Holy Spirit indwelling within their, their life. There's going to be a change. There's going to be evidence. We can't necessarily explain it like the wind, but we can see the effects. There's proof of the reality. So there's a change to enter into the kingdom of God. There's a decision to enter into the kingdom of God. It's not automatic. I'd like to drop down to verse 14 where Jesus talks about the account of the serpent in the wilderness. That account's found in Numbers 21. In that account, the Israelites complained about a lack of food, a lack of water, and the hardships of the wilderness. And they spoke out and they complained against God and against Moses. And because of their complaining, God brought punishment upon them by sending serpents into their midst that bit and killed a lot of people. And as was the history of the children of Israel, they would complain and God would bring punishment and then they'd cry out to God for mercy And so they cried out to God for mercy. 
And the Lord told Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a tall pole and stand it up and that when someone was bitten, they could look at that bronze serpent and they would be healed. Jesus here compares himself to that bronze serpent, saying just as Moses lifted up that serpent, that he, the Son of Man, would be lifted up so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I'd like to think about a couple parallels there. First of all, consider the parallel of the serpent. The children of Israel had sinned by complaining, by grumbling against God, by the root of it, I guess, would have been their disbelief that God actually cared and was providing for them. And their punishment for their sin was the deadly bite of a poisonous serpent. So that bronze serpent was lifted up to provide them salvation from the bite of the serpent. They could find healing. So Jesus said that he was come to be lifted up as well to provide salvation. And so what was he providing salvation from? He was providing salvation as well from the bite of a serpent. Think back to the Garden of Eden where Satan came to Eve as a serpent and deceived her and led the human race into sin. That's the serpent's bite that all of us are suffering from today. The serpent's bite that Jesus came to provide salvation from when he was lifted up on the cross. And that's the other parallel. Was the lifting up. That serpent was lifted up to provide salvation. So people could see. So people could look from a distance. And see and be saved. And Jesus said that he would be lifted up. To signify the death that he would die on the cross. And I found it interesting that Jesus, many times, different times, he, he used those ter- that term when he spoke of his death. John eight twenty eight. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he. John twelve thirty two. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So Jesus used this term many times of how he was going to be lifted up, indicating that he was going to be elevated to a position where people would look to him for salvation, just like they did in the Old Testament time to that bronze serpent. We're given the opportunity to look to him for for a spiritual salvation rather than a physical Then we move on down 
to verses to verse 16, which is probably one of the most well-known and most memorized verses in the Bible. And this verse says so much about why we're here today, about what Easter is about. tells us why Jesus came and why he was willing to suffer and die on the cross. It's because of God's great love for the world. It says, God, for God so loved the world. The world is referring to everyone, all of the world's inhabitants. All of mankind. God loved his creation so much. Mankind was created in God's own image. Was God created so many wonderful things, but he created man in his own image to be like him, to fellowship with him. And then man turned his back on God. But God so loved the world that he is willing to give his own son as a sacrifice so that he could be lifted up on the cross. So that we could be saved from the, from the death that was inflicted on us by the serpent, Satan. And we can't fathom and understand God's love. It was so great that he was willing to send his son. It says here, his only begotten son. And God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, we can't really wrap our minds around the Trinity. But God loved his Son, but yet he was willing to give him up, to send him to earth, to suffer and die for our redemption. When the children of Israel were being punished for those poisonous serpents, And God told Moses to put that bronze serpent on a pole. It didn't cost Moses very much to make that bronze serpent and stand it up on a pole. But it cost God so much to send the son he loved down to live with sinful humans and to suffer and die death on the cross. We also see in verse 16 that Jesus' sacrifice was for everyone, everyone who will believe. It wasn't just for a few. The invitation is open to everyone. All we need to do is believe and receive the sacrifice that Jesus has made available on our behalf. God so loved the whole world. He made it available to everyone. There's no limits to the salvation that he's provided other than mankind's own stubbornness that refuses to yield to Christ. A stubbornness because true belief isn't just belief. True belief requires us to take action. It requires us to submit and to live a life of obedience to Christ. And then we have the beautiful result. 
of believing and accepting the sacrifice of Christ. And the result is that we would not perish, but have everlasting life. The children of Israel faced physical death. And I'm sure it wasn't a pleasant death to be bitten by one of those serpents. We face everlasting, eternal death. We're told in Revelations 20, 15, what the eternal end is for those who refuse to accept that sacrifice that Christ has made for each of us. Revelations 20, 15 says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's what it means to perish. But Christ has promised that all who believe and look to him, submit to him, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So why would anyone be so stubborn as to not accept that gift? Sure, we have to to accept it. We have to lay down self. We have to lay down our own selfish will and ambitions and submit to him. But is that even a sacrifice in comparison with what we gain? Christ is the one who made the sacrifice. God is the one who made the sacrifice of sending his son. Christ is the one who suffered. And we're the ones who gain all the benefits. It's one of the wonders of God's love for you and for me. That he sacrificed his most precious son so that we could reap the benefits. You know, if you or I were God, we would have designed some type of redemption that caused sinful man to suffer and pay for what he did. The Roman Catholics teach of purgatory. That's the kind of thing we would design as humans. Something that would cause people to suffer and pay the penalty for what they did. But rather, God designed a plan where his son suffered for you and for me. And we get to reap the benefits. Verse 17 and 18, Christ says that he didn't come to condemn the world, but to bring salvation. We see that condemnation comes through disbelief. Christ doesn't bring condemnation. We bring it on ourselves through disbelief, through not accepting the free offer of salvation that Christ has made available. Jesus' provision for us is salvation. Our rejection of that provision is condemnation. And in verses 19 and 21 then tells us why we tend to refuse to come to Christ and accept his free offer of salvation. It's because that in our evil, sinful nature, we love darkness. And Christ is light. Christ exposes sin and darkness. And rather than opening ourselves up, 
to the light of Christ, we want to cling to what we know. We want to cling to the darkness and evil within us. Again, we foolishly think that we're giving something up to accept Christ, when in reality, we're letting go of darkness and gaining light. We're letting go of death and gaining life. I don't think often that we comprehend how depraved and evil the sinful nature of man is. What we have been saved from, what we have the opportunity to be saved from. Because most of us live in a relatively sheltered world in many ways. But we need to recognize that not perishing and not ha- and not perishing and, and, and gaining eternal life, it begins now. It begins in this life. It's a changed life that is a blessing now as well as a promise of a future reward for the faithful for all of eternity. Tuesday, I thought about this. When it's the aftermath of a wreck on the interstate, I saw a man in a rage grab another man and throw him across a guardrail onto the ground and jump across onto that man and begin to pound him with his fists. And as I drove through, I had to wonder if he was even going to live because of the beating he was taking. That's a picture of mankind without Christ. Evil, darkness, rage, hatred. That's what Christ came to free me and you from. Are we grateful for what we have gained through Christ? Are we grateful for what we can gain by simply giving up self and looking unto Jesus? As I said before, it really isn't even a sacrifice on our behalf, even though Satan would want us to think that. Christ is the one who has made the sacrifice. Christ has been lifted up for us. In fact, Christ has been lifted up more than once. He was lifted up on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He was lifted up that first Easter morning when he rose from the dead. And he was also lifted up when he ascended to heaven. 
and was exalted to the highest place at the Father's right hand, where he stands, sits today, interceding for you and for me. The call today is for us to believe. <clears throat> Nicodemus came seeking, not fully understanding who Jesus was and what he was teaching. But Jesus, as I said here in a few short verses, lays out for us his mission here on earth. His mission was to offer a sacrifice that was motivated by the Father's love. A sacrifice that's freely available to all. And the only price we have to pay is to give up of the sin and the darkness within our hearts. So that we can have opened to us the new birth into God's glorious kingdom. And walk in the glorious light of our risen Savior. Praise God.